Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. After reading the book that Philip Corso and William Burns wrote, I was on the fence. And then everybody said, Corso has to be some kind of nutcase. So what happens? Well, I play the fifth anniversary edition of Out of the Blue, this mm-hmm. documentary that, amongst other people, James Fox, our guest, produced. And suddenly, I don't know about Philip Corso. He seems like a pretty straight shooter to me. Really? He comes off as credible in the video, Gene. I I agree with you. I mean, I read The Day After Roswell, and, you know, I'm reading it, and parts of the book I found very, very compelling. Other parts of it, and and not, you know, the book overall, I, I thought was very credible. There were certain things in there that I sort of shook my head and I thought, now how can that be? Things about the timeline of the development of certain technologies and how those timelines drive up with what Corso claims. But overall, you know, reading the guy's words, you don't get the sense that on an external sort of a facade, you don't get the sense that he's nonsensical. You see the footage of him in Out of the Blue. And he does indeed come across as someone who is genuine. But, Gene, you look at a guy like he who shall not be named, Michael Horn, right? You listen to the guy speak in a normal way, and he seems like a reasonable cat. And then, you know, once you start to scratch at these guys and to try to peel some layers back, then you start seeing true colors. And unfortunately, we don't have Corso around to do that with. You know, in those interviews that are in Out of the Blue, he does indeed seem like, you say, a straight shooter. But what happens when you put a tough question to him in person? Unfortunately, we're never going to have that opportunity. It is so sad. It really is. Now, the second disc, which I did not see, has outtakes. Any more information yeah. about Corso there? Yeah, there's there's a few little clips of him in there as well. Nothing outrageous, nothing that we don't already know. <sighs> this is where this just gets all so crazy. I mean... The high weirdness around these topics, Gene, the high weirdness around talking about any of the paranormal stuff, you you hit these walls. I mean, think about the Skinwalker Ranch stuff. There was some credible stuff in there. You have George Knapp in there, who's a credible journalist. And then you read some of these accounts of what supposedly went on there. And it's so completely odd that you just stop and say, well, where's the reality Where's the fantasy? And I can tell you based on my own paranormal experiences, Gene, that the problem is that there is no hard line. It's very, you know, it's easy from a, it's very easy from a theoretical point of view to say, all right, we're going to set down some scientific standards. And if a phenomenon doesn't meet those scientific standards, if we can't dissect it with these tools, then it's not legitimate. And the problem is human vanity. To think at this point that we have all the tools for understanding the nature of reality, that's not legitimate. Ultimately, if we're going to look at these strange phenomena, if we're going to get to any understanding, we do have to expand our notion, I think, of not what the scientific method is, but we have to expand into new territories. We have to assume that, you know, for example, you know, we talk about How much do we know about the nature of the universe? And we're discovering at this point that the bulk of the matter that appears to make up this universe is of a nature that we absolutely do not comprehend in any real way. We've got dark matter and dark energy. We seem to be able to account for their presence. 
In, in other words, they, they have to be there in order for the universe to work. We don't know what these things are. We don't know really even how to gauge what they are. And so the scientific method gene has worked very well for us. And, and, and it's true that it, you, you always need to deploy it in order to really have not only a concrete understanding of something, but the ability to reproduce it. But as we move into the areas of, um, for example, advanced physics, certainly anything dealing with superstring theory or membrane theory or you know quantum mechanics, it becomes very clear that the universe is simply more complex than we ever imagined. And in listening to testimony of people like Corso, you know, there's this one line. Huh, I think it's on the outtake disc, uh, or might have been even on the documentary. One of the things that's on that outtake disc for Out of the Blue is a piece that these guys had done years before, like a preliminary version of the documentary. And I think it's in there that Corso says, as far as the debunkers go, I have one question for you. Were you there? I was there, were you? And listen, this is what I tell people who have sent me emails about the things I've talked about seeing and experiencing on the Paracast, and people will write to me and say, well, you know, I have a problem with certain aspects of your description, I have an issue with certain parts of your story, and I say to them, look, you weren't there, I was there. Uh, you know, you, you, an opinion is fine, but ultimately uh, the experience is personal, and, uh, you know, people's perceptions, what, what is or is not true, do not affect someone's experience that they had, that they had with other people. You know, we, we have that problem where personal anecdotes very often in paranormal research are all that we have to go by. Well, in the case of Corso, yeah, he says he was there. He was told to go to private industry and deliver to them evidence of alien mm -hmm. technology. Right. Now, that's what he says. Now, is he lying? Is he trying to do something that's totally out of character for this man? Remember, this man apparently compiled a pretty decent record of service. Right. Suddenly, Absolutely. in his golden years, the last few years of his life, he's going to completely become another person, and he's going to fabricate everything. That bothers me. Now, what about the book and the contradictions? Well, I gather from what... Bill Burns said there were a couple of versions of that manuscript. It's quite possible, number one, Corso was ill, so maybe he didn't spend as much time as he should have going over the manuscript, making sure it was perfect. Perhaps some facts got messed up in the editing process, right, and that's so right. easy to happen. I don't know. I would like to ask our guest, James Fox, his perceptions of Corso and whether he had an opportunity to talk to him much beyond the interview. And that's coming up next on the Paracast, by the way. We're going to talk about Out of the Blue, a documentary about UFOs, a film about A good documentary. A, a very good, good documentary, documentary, a really okay. good documentary featuring Peter Coyote as the narrator and a lot of people who you know from this show and you know from their interest in UFOs and their experiences. A film by James Fox, Tim Coleman, Boris Zuboff, and James Fox comes up next on the Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. 
Here's our special offer, because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. James, you've done this fabulous documentary, Out of the Blue, and, of course, the very first moment I opened up the package and looked at it, the very first thing I noticed was a quote on the cover of the DVD, and and the quote is, Out of the Blue emerges as one of the very best films ever produced on this, one of the most interesting subjects in the history of science. That quote is by Michael Shermer from Skeptic Magazine. I know a lot of our listeners saw you on the Larry King interview recently where Shermer made a complete fool of himself. So I'm wondering, how did you get him to give you a quote for the cover of your DVD? I sent him a copy of the film a couple years ago. And it's really funny, actually, because I said I'd put this film together and uh, would he be interested in, in, in seeing it? And he had a very terse response. It was like, uh, sure. And then I emailed him back and I said, well, do you have a mailing address where I can send it? Sure, here it is, and gives it to me. So I send it to him, and like a week or two goes by, I haven't heard anything, and so I email him, did you get the film? Yes. Okay, well, another email. Did you watch it? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit what you thought? Yeah. (laughs) This should take about six months. (laughs) I mean, seriously, trying this stuff out of him, you know? I I really, it was really funny, you know, and then finally, very reluctantly, I said, well, what did you think? I'd like to use a quote, you know, from you. And then he gave me the quote. He said, are you ready? I said, well, sure, hit it on me. And then he gave me the quote. And funny enough, in the green room at the Larry King show, you know, I was taking jabs at him the whole time. And I said, you know, well, we were being very diplomatic in the green room, you know, but we knew it was going to be a a mud-throwing, you know, match just as soon as we went out on on television. He was really curious about that craft that flew over Arizona in 97. And he kept asking the governor, now, God, how do you know how big this thing was? 
know, points of reference. And the governor was like, look, I'm very familiar with the mountain range there. I know it. I mean, I could see it right over the mountain range. Mm -hmm. I'm an auto pilot myself, and I was a captain in the Air Force, so I had a point of reference. He said the thing was absolutely massive. And Sherman was very, very inquisitive uh, and puzzled. And you could see that I, I know, and I even talked to Shermer behind the scenes. I said, look, how can you explain that craft that landed at, at Bentwaters, England? He said, no, I, I realize there is a phenomenon here, but we can't jump, you know, to say that it's extraterrestrial. I said, well, if it's not terrestrial, what the hell is it? Well, the thing is, James, that, you know, something we talk about quite a bit on the Paracast are UFOs and the topic of, the critical topic of where these things originate from, where they come from. And something that is continually discussed on the show is the fact that while we know that these are to a large degree paranormal events, these things appearing, flying through our sky, doing the things that they do, it still is really difficult to say definitively that these things are from another planet we, or, or extraterrestrial in origin. There are, on this show certainly, a number of theories on the table. And for Shermer to say that is really interesting. Of course, Shermer on the show also said, and this blew my mind, that pilots were not necessarily more qualified observers than the average Joe on the street. He actually went on the record and said that, and I thought that was really outrageous for him to, to make that statement while trying to represent himself as a critical thinker. It just didn't make sense. Well, did you hear him on the nylon piece? No. Okay, well, there's a Nightline, Nightline did a piece on this a couple of weeks ago, and he said just because astronauts and presidents and, and pilots, their testimony is irrelevant. Oh, really? Yes, exactly what he said. Their, oh. their testimony is irrelevant. So, no, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, you know, one, one can't say definitively they're extraterrestrial. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it doesn't appear to be us. Because obviously it's us coming back from the future or something, which is, I guess, we can't uh, exclude that as a possibility. Um, so I say if it's not us, it's somebody else. That's correct. And I use that word extraterrestrial. I probably shouldn't say extraterrestrial, but uh, doesn't appear to be terrestrial activity. I, I don't know. Non-human. <laughs> you know, I, th I think non-human. Non-human, yeah. I don't know. Right, non -human. right. No. I think non-human is accurate, and in the discussion of interdimensional sourcing for these things, it's probably useful to recognize that if we have intelligent life that is able to travel from distant star systems clearly i think it, at this point is probably safe to say that they have discovered tricks that we do not at this time know about that probably involve interdimensional leaping or bending of space-time that from our point of view would probably appear to be interdimensional in nature even to transverse the great distances they would have to transverse to get here so, you know, these are things, these are subtleties that are important to bring up. But for Shermer to sit there and make statements about what these things are or aren't, when you've got people, many people who that night in Phoenix saw a craft that was at least 5,000 feet long. And, you know, people need to understand that if you take a standard cruise ship that people take vacations on, the average size of one of those things is about 1,000 to 1,100 feet. And so we're talking about a craft that is five cruise ships strung together in width. Um, human technology has not produced anything of that size, certainly, that can fly. Yeah, it doesn't disturb the air. Yeah. It doesn't uh, make any noise. Yeah, no, we, we don't have anything like that. Now, we're curious to know about what went down behind the scenes with you and Mr. Symington, 
given that he really did make a lot of fun of this when it happened that whole press conference with his uh, chief of staff coming out in the uh, in the costume was really insulting and it really flies in the face of his claim now that he actually witnessed this thing as well i mean did he say anything to you off record about that i'm curious you know i've had a number of occasions with him uh, just the two of us where i've said look you got a phone call didn't you somebody shut you down Mm -hmm. and uh i'd love to tell you that that he did did get a phone call but he 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 says that you know he said the the state of arizona was on the brink of, of hysteria and that he really wanted to add some, bring some levity to this whole thing. Now, that's the story that he's sticking to. Do I believe it? Maybe there's an element of that truth to that, but I, I don't know. Because I mean, he seemed pretty, um, remember the earlier statements he made earlier that day in the morning when he said he's going to launch an investigation, contact DPS and his, his people at the Care Force Base? Right. He just seemed so serious there, you know? Hmm. And I, I talked to Francis Barwin. She said he's not a jokester. He didn't, he's not the kind of guy that did those types of things. You know, you know, if you got a phone call, you're certainly not copping to it. Yeah, well, no. But I, I know that it nodded him for ten years. I mean, he really felt like he let his constituents everybody down. I mean, it really bothered him, and he he was uh, he jumped at the opportunity to you know recant those statements and and, and set the record straight. So I mean, you know, I, I was very upset with him too. Very upset. I mean, you know, I researched the, the, the Phoenix Flights case, and I spent a number of uh, weeks in Phoenix interviewing witnesses, and I know that, you know, that was that was a, that was a deplorable stunt, you know, and uh, it really upset me. But we got to think, you know, at least he's coming out now. Right. Better than not at all. It's later better than ever, I suppose. Gene and I have both watched Out of the Blue. I had actually watched the older version of it that's up on Google Video. You were very kind to send us the um, the new double-disc set, and I've actually absorbed and watched both of the discs. And I have to tell you, I've seen a lot of documentaries on this topic. But um, you hit, I think, all of the really important points, and you stayed away from a lot of the nonsense. And I, I want to commend you for that. I think that that was really something that's constructive, ultimately, for a serious, sober discussion of this topic. And there were things that you brought up that I thought were really important and relevant. And some of the access that you got, I'm, we're curious to know, um, you went all the way over to Russia to speak to select members of the military from over there. How did you get these guys to go on the record? And what did you think was their objective in doing so? Basically, what happened was I had no intentions of, of doing out of the blue. I mean, when I finished 50 years of denial, I figured, well, I've got to kind of uh, I, I pretty much accomplished what I set out to do, and, uh, and uh, I thought I did a pretty good job, pat myself on the back, and, and I was actually put a proposal together for a film on alternative energy. Then I was contacted by a guy uh, in Russia who was interested in broadcasting it, and, and, and he said, look, you know, we don't really have any money, but uh, if you give me the broadcast rights for Russia, I will guarantee you I can secure interviews with you, uh, with you know, active military uh, people here in Star City, Russia. Yeah, as well as the Cosmonaut, and I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of interesting. Hmm, let me think about that. So I thought about it for a bit, and I went for it. Uh, you know, I sent, him, I sent him what he needed, I, the master and everything else, and he got a translator, and and then uh, I went to Russia and got those, secured those interviews. I was amazed. I remember when I, when I arrived in Moscow in the dead of the winter, I remember thinking, gosh, I hope this guy's for real, because yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty screwed if he is. <laughs> you know, it's pretty foreign over there. There was a dead winter and everything, and uh, and he really came through for me, man. I mean, he, he, we, we flew all over. We went to, we went to uh, Star City. We went to uh, Mineral Water. 
we met with active uh, members of, of, uh, of government and, and military. And uh, I remember the first guy, uh, I think he was the equivalent of an admiral, and he was interrogating kind of me through the translator, and his basic philosophy was, look, if you're here to discuss whether UFOs exist or not, the door's right there. He was more interested in talking. He said, you know, you obviously haven't done your homework, and, and uh, he's not going to waste his time with me. But he said he's more interested in talking about the implications of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and it was, it was amazing, the openness. And, I mean, you know, Belgium, I went to Belgium, and, and uh, the Air Force was open there, too, about the whole thing. And, you know, as you know, France is opening up their doors. And uh, I'm, in, I'm in touch with some people at the Ministry of Defense in England, and they said that England's about to follow the footsteps of France. Right. So I think there's a definite, uh, there's a definite um, uh, movement for uh, more openness within government. We just have to, we just have to force uh, the U.S. government to, to, to follow suit. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com. And your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, and we're talking to James Fox, one of the filmmakers behind Out of the Blue. They currently have a fifth anniversary edition, and it's subtitled The Definitive Investigation of the UFO Phenomenon. I think I'd like to maybe move us to the beginning for a little bit here. How did you get involved in making documentary about UFOs? Did you have any preconceived interest or opinions about it? No, as a matter of fact, I remember uh, I dated this girl briefly down in Santa Barbara, and she told me uh, within the first couple of weeks of dating that her previous boyfriend was into UFOs. And I just remember immediately, it was like this knee-jerk response, he must have been a nutcake. You know, it was like, it was immediate, no thought process or anything, this guy's crazy. With a instant. This is you not one I mean? of your former girlfriends, is it, David? I'm sorry? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, Gene, it's not one of my former girlfriends. No, sir. I've dated no women from Santa Barbara. No, unfortunately. Something you must have missed in your lifetime, yes. No, but and, and, James, your reaction was a typical reaction, right? Yeah. It was, it was, it, like I said, it was, there was no thought process. It was like immediate. It was like, this guy's a nut. I mean, just, that's what I thought. And, uh, you know, I had a little sighting myself, I think it was like 14 years ago, and I was so excited. I was with four other people. And uh, I even videotaped it. I came home and I shared it with my family and, and close friends, and they all laughed at me. And so um, I thought, well, gosh, if these guys aren't going to believe me, I mean, you know, I might as well not bother talking about this one. And I started to investigate a little bit. You know, I started to look into it, and I found that as soon as I scratched the surface, the, the whole ridicule 
factor, gable factor, or whatever you want to call it, uh, there's actually appeared to be something real going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think about a year later, after more and more research, and I spoke to a few people, I'm very kind of uh, inquisitive. I uh, and at that during that time of my life, I always had a video camera by my side. I was just the uh, you know I just it was videotaping. I was interested. I was doing other things. I was doing a documentary on people living uh, homeless and stuff like that. And I always had a camera, so I started documenting my research. And I think after about a year, I told my uh, my father, who's a mainstream journalist, I said, gosh, you know, I think I'm going to do this documentary on UFOs. And he said, my God, son, think about what you're doing. Don't ruin your life. There's nothing to it. You're wasting your time, you know. I said, look, I'm doing this with or without your support. So, you know, I'm sorry. But and I think it took about two, two or three years before I had any fam- family and friends uh, behind me at all. I mean, they were wow. just trying to talk me out of it the whole time. And then I got a then I got an interview with uh, Paul Astronaut Edgar Mitchell, and then I did, and then I got one with uh, Mercury Astronaut Gord Cooper, and I think they started to take me a little more seriously then. I'm curious that footage that you say you shot now that's not even on the outtakes disc. Um, you still have that footage that you shot of you? I, I do, yeah. And we were on Today Show, and we were on, uh, but you know, it's the typical. All right. People always say, gosh, you know, you have a UFO sighting, why can't you document it on a video camera, especially at night? Now, what people don't seem to realize is that a video camera, the lens, the eyepiece itself emits light. So that causes your, your, you know, uh, the pupils to close. Right. So, so, you know, it's like having a small flashlight in your eyeball, right? So you try to look through that, and then you're looking for something with no points of reference in in a night sky. It's darting about. It's very difficult. It's really difficult to do and pinpoint it. And then you have to muck about with the autofocus because there's nothing for it to, to focus on. So it's constantly right. going in and out of focus. In and out, yeah. Unless you have a tripod, you're set up and ready for this thing. It's really difficult, especially at night. Uh, I mean, really difficult. But, yeah, I mean, it's pretty pretty, pretty impressive footage. You know, you hear everyone screaming in the background, and you see the lights, and, and it's kind of darting around. But it's difficult to, you know, differentiate movement from the camera as opposed to movement of the object. There's no point of reference. Um, so, you know, I didn't even bother putting my own footage in film. Hmm. Not that that's surprising, because, I mean, ultimately, especially with nighttime footage, like you point out, if it's not a lockdown camera, then you've got this problem of, okay, you've got lights in the sky. Yep. Well, there are a lot of things that can be mistaken at night when you have lights in the sky. There's a documentary filmmaker um, who uh, we've had on the show before, and um, he's teamed up with a fellow who supposedly claims to have shot a bunch of footage of fantastic light UFOs over Lake Erie, when indeed what we're really seeing is uh, our airplanes that are taxiing for, for uh, that, are, that are lining up for, for, for landing. And um, based on the way the camera picks up these lights and the fact that this guy was using a single CCD camera, it wasn't even a three-chip camera, basically you get this oscillation and modulation of light that's then you know processed through what NTSC does to a video signal. And you end up with a blobby nightmare in the sky that uh, these guys are saying, look, it's UFOs. Nah, it's airplanes. Um, so, yeah, lights in the sky are, are a tough one. The thing about lights in the sky that we don't often see are lights in the sky that are moving really rapidly, something that is a recurring theme in the reports of UFOs that are apparently legitimate. Um, these things often move at speeds that defy anything we have. And if you saw a light in the sky moving like that, well, then maybe you'd have something a little more compelling that would even work if you had something that wasn't a locked-off camera. So, I mean, I can understand what you're saying. Now, you brought up Gordon Cooper, and 
in the documentary, there is an absolutely fascinating uh, experience that he reports where he saw um, this UFO land in the desert. And he claims that there were members of the crew that were shooting film of this, and that he handled that film. He held the film up to light, saw the good frame, the developed film, saw the saucer on the ground. I asked him about it. And uh, and he had to hand the film for the drovers. He said there was a special courier plane that flew in from Washington, picked the stuff up. And did you notice his demeanor change when I asked him about it? Did he ever follow up on that? Mm-hmm. It was the only time he really, I, I hit a raw nerve with him. Tightened up, yep. Yeah, and he got really, he kind of snapped at me a little bit, you know. And uh, I could tell it had, been, it had been gnawing at him all these years, you know. This is back in what, I think it was 52? You know, back in the 50s at Edwards Air Force Base. I mean, what the heck was that? A saucer with three landing gear? Tripod landing gear? Right, and they're shooting all this footage? Yeah, it was broad daylight. They were shooting, uh, there was a testing uh, facility for F 86 fighter jets, some new uh, runway or something. And yeah, they turned their cameras on it. I believe he said they even took a few steps towards it, and then it lifted back off and shot off at a high rate of speed. But it was broad daylight. You, you, you sort of have to wonder in those cases, and, and this is something that I think is one of the great mysteries of the um, Rendlesham case, you have to wonder about to what degree are the military not only aware that this is happening, but, boy, at the risk of sounding out there, um, cooperating? And th- there was an interesting thing that came up in Rendlesham where supposedly you had this event go on over a three-night period, and there were reports that um, the beings from these things were talking to or interacting with, somehow, uh, members of the military on the ground. Yeah, those reports came from a guy who's, who's uh, uh, Larry Warren, who's, he certainly believes what he's saying. And I'm not saying that what he's saying isn't true, but, you know, he's the only one that was even barely there at the time who claims to have had those experiences or saw that. John Burroughs and I believe Penniston did some sort of um, hypnosis. And these guys are like dogmatic, you know, conservative uh, military guys. I mean, Penniston and Burroughs are, you know, not the kind of guys that would, would fabricate any kind of story. But they, they were quite taken by, they think that more happened than what they recall, let's put it that way. But I do think it's interesting. The press release that they put out was rather interesting, I thought. Nothing of any defense significance took place, and then the other one was there was no con- there was no question of any contact with alien beings. Like, wait a minute, no one even asked you guys that question. Why are you saying that? <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes uh, you wonder. There's no drugs in here. <laughs> I always wonder about those denials. Yes, that I did not have sexual relations with that woman. What woman? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what we're asking. <laughs> want a cigar? Hey, want a cigar? Uh, yeah, no. Well, you know that is. That, that's really curious, actually, that they would come out and say those things unprompted. But I was going to ask you about um, the fact that there was no mention of uh, Warren and his book, Left at East Gate, in your discuss, discussion of Rendlesham. Had you contacted him and spoken to him about being part of the documentary? We actually interviewed him. We actually did an interview with him. And I like Warren. I really do. But the other witnesses, the colonel, the general, and, and the rest of the guys said they won't be in the film if he's in the film. Huh. Interesting. And so, I, you know, and I really believe that, uh, that Barry Warren believes what he's saying. I really do. But he's out there all on his own saying it. And, and uh, you know, what are we going to do? Well, there were some parts. I had read, I had read uh, Left at Eastgate last year, and there were some parts that, that seemed kind of curious about him being taken to an underground facility where there seemed to be some kind of a cooperative effort going on between 
non-human entities and military and that he was shown certain films. And I actually did read later on where I won't say he recanted some of that, but he called into question the veracity of some of that testimony they had made. Meanwhile, it's pretty clear that something pretty severe happened there. And it did go on over a few days, right? Well, that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Well, you know, uh, the deputy base commander, Charles Holt, uh, Colonel Charles Holt, he, um, he went out to debunk the whole thing. And then it happened to him. And he said, he's so funny, you know, uh, he said, well, these things were obviously looking for something. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, because they were doing grid, the grid pattern searches. And they're shooting mm. beams of light down. I mean, one of the beams of light that shot down at his feet was like six feet away from him, right in front of him. And it was a perfect focused beam of light. And the crap was hovering right over, right overhead, um, totally silently. I think actually, I think that that section is in the film where he talks about it when when he had the tape recorder playing. You remember yeah, that? Yeah. Oh he yeah. Shot a beam absolutely. down to the ground. This is unreal. That's yeah, right. Anyway, he describes that, but he said they were looking for something. Well, what did he think they were looking for? He, he didn't know. He didn't know. Hmm. He said they were looking for something. It's just interesting that, you know, from a military standpoint, that he noticed that, you know, the, the, the way in which they were doing the grid search, because I guess that's the most effective way, no matter where you're from, <laughs> to do it, you know. Well, the, the documentary is full of so much compelling evidence along these lines, James. I mean, what do you ultimately think it's going to take for people to stand up and pay attention to this, given that, I mean, you know, you've got... A two-hour documentary where, where, quite frankly, for the most part, you don't have a single bogus testimony. And, you know, we've, we've spoken to some people on the show that are obviously delusional. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on this show and on our forums about Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project and, and the stuff that Greer has gotten involved with uh, besides the Disclosure Project, the C-SETI stuff, which does have people really concerned about his credibility. Yeah. I mean, at the well, same you know, time... I yeah. Sorry, no, I just have to say that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right. So when you're going to come out publicly, and this is why I just can't believe Dr. Greer would do this, and say, oh, yeah, well, we've been communicating with extraterrestrials with flashlights. It's like, wait a minute. That's an extraordinary claim. You better have some big evidence to back that statement up. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're, just, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, can't you, it's amazing to me that he, you know, he's an intelligent guy, that he doesn't make that connection. That, wait a minute, I'm going to say this, people are looking at me like I'm crazy unless I can back it up, and I can't back it up, so why am I saying this? You know, it might very well be true, maybe you are, but you need to show us a major proof of, of that. What worries me is that you have to spend $800 for the privilege of following him with the flashlights. That bothers me. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> you know, which is, I think, one of the reasons that I know. as well, much you know, as I, mean, I like what he was saying about disclosure, and what he was trying to do, as soon as we get into this other problem, the C-SETI stuff, he loses me. And we're not alone. David and I are not alone in this. If you look over our PowerCast discussion forums, lots and lots of our listeners felt the same way. They felt very suspicious because of that other aspect of his life. Yes. Well, yes. yeah, it, it, it's almost worse than that. They felt, I think some of us feel that, there's something a little more nefarious going on where, you know, he gets together this wide group of witnesses, some of whom are questionable, but the majority of whom are highly compelling and certainly competent, gets them to do this testimony, gets them to do this press conference, gets them to go on record. And that's almost as if he goes and does this C-SETI thing, almost as if he were now creating a vehicle by where he could 
by association. Yeah, he could basically start to harm the credibility of his witnesses. And one starts to think, okay, if we're going to let conspiracy theories run nuts here, gee, it's almost like it's a setup to identify the whistleblowers and then take them down. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing to me, you know, really. I don't know, I don't understand it, you know, and I actually, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, I went around the, uh, as a cameraman just because I wanted to see what kind of witness he had. And I went and filmed, I think, maybe uh, for a couple of weeks throughout the uh, East Coast, probably maybe 15, 20 witnesses of his witnesses, some of which were involved with crash mm -hmm. retrieval. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very, I was very impressed with the level of uh, credibility or credible witnesses that he had access to. And these are good old boys, and some of them in the Bible Belt and you know church-going, honest, good patri patriotic Americans. I was very, very impressed. And I'm, and I had to be, be honest with you guys, I'm pretty skeptical. And I, and I, I fought with my two co-producers um, a lot about who I wanted and who I didn't want in the piece. And if there was any question, in my opinion, of, of credibility in this then I, I, I just chopped him out. And, you know, the Greer thing is that, uh, you know, we had some discussion with the five-year uh, anniversary edition, and we actually cut, and I hate to say this, but we did, we actually cut most of Greer out. But we did leave the National Press Club in because I felt like those witnesses merited, you know? Absolutely. Just because they're associated with him, these guys, you know, the FAA guys and colonels, and uh, we, we left that, that statement in, so we minimized his, his appearance. I, I think he's barely in the piece, but the National Press Club, I did leave in there because, you know, those guys were, were calling in Congress to testify of congressional hearings. Absolutely. I mean, all of that testimony, uh, there were just a few people up there that, you know, uh, when I saw the video footage of that testimony and then, you know, Clifford Stone is saying stuff, I thought to myself, okay, this is a problem. Stuff he's saying is completely outrageous. And um, you did can you almost. Did I cut him out? Yes, I did. And I want to yeah. thank you for that, um, because I think that there were other people up on that stage that looked over at Clifford when he was talking and thought, oh, holy God, what am I doing up here? So I think it's really good that you would have not included Clifford, because I've spoken to him on the phone. He's a very nice man, but I don't think he had access to anything. I think he's basically looking for some limelight. And, and this is a problem in this field, James, and, and you've clearly identified that you understand this where, you know, death, guilt by association and death by association mm -hmm. is a serious problem. And maintaining credibility... Credibility which, is everything in this field. No, no question about it. Credibility is everything. And, 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 and uh, you know, I can't go into the details right now, but we've, we've got a big event coming up in a couple of months. And I'm focused. It's all, and one discussion that we're all having, the people that I'm working with, it, it's my idea, and I'm, I'm launching this entirely on my own because I want to maintain full control over the way this thing is presented. Uh, you know, I'm borrowing money and everything to make this thing happen because I don't want to um, relinquish control of this, uh, of this effort. But the one thing we're all discussing with the people that I'm involved with is credibility. This has to be uh, the utmost credibility. There can't be any weak links. Right. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 
2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to James Fox, one of the producers of Out of the Blue, and there's a fifth anniversary edition that's out now. And I saw this with my wife the other night. We just sat there and watched it, and we both enjoyed it. And we watch it not as people who were involved in this field, but just like ordinary people. We stick it in the DVD player. We turn on the TV set. We watch it. And I enjoy it through and through. Now, talking about credibility, there was one person who was in the film that I have long wondered about, and unfortunately he's not here. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yep, I knew you were going to say that. All right. Very the reason good. we have is yeah. one of our friends is Bill Burns, who was the co-author of The Day After Roswell. And I've always had mixed feelings about everything. And then I watch the sections in which Corso appeared, and I said, this guy just sounds like a straight shooter. Just like another military man. And if that's the way he is through and through in talking about this case and answering a lot of questions, of course, we don't know, then obviously we have to look at this very carefully. So what did you think? Okay. I interviewed him in 1997. And I hung out with him and his, and his family and his grandchildren. And he had his hands around his grandchildren. He's like, this is why I'm coming out. And I, and, and I really looked the guy in the eyes, and I really believed him. I mean, I really didn't feel one ounce of, of suspicion or any of that stuff. But I do know that he said to me that the book, I believe it's Day After Roswell, Roswell the Day After, I'm sorry. The Day After Roswell. Day yes, After Roswell, Roswell was filled with discrepancies, and that he tried to contact Bill Burns prior to its publication to, to correct those discrepancies and that the book went to print before he had a chance to do that and he was not happy about that Mm. that much I do know that he told that directly to me so when I hear people debunk him solely based on points in his book I I keep having to refer back to the time when he said that to me and I believe there was even some kind of uh, lawsuit going on when he he died against Bill Burns that's certainly What he told me, yeah, he said he was following, he was following, we should find out the, the, the validity of that, but that's what he said to me, yes, that he was not happy about that. And he had his hands around his grandchildren, and he said, this is why I'm coming out. 
And um, I don't know. That's, that's I, very I, I know that there's been a lot of controversy. I mean, you know, he's one of the highest-ranking guys uh, involved or coming out with, with the whole Roswell thing. But, you know, uh, that's about all I know. Well, that's that's really interesting, and, and I think obviously we need to ask Bill about that, Gene, because uh, that's not something I've heard before. Yes, um, indeed, I think that's something that we have to follow up on, because like I said, what I saw there did not impress me as somebody who was trying to do anything remotely deceptive. He just wanted to tell the truth. And I can understand where the book might have had errors. And one thing that Bill Burns did say, and I'm not going to make a judgment one way or the other, is that other people had worked on this book with Corso before he got involved. And that it's possible some of the problems were attributed to that, that it went through several hands and the editing got messed up. And this happens even with the best of intentions. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and 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 and, and yeah, I it's, 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 I believed him. Let's put it that way. When I met him, I really did. I really, really did, and I really okay. enjoyed my time with him. Did okay. you see him in the hangar in Fifty Years of Denial when I when I got him in the in the actual hangar in Roswell, New Mexico, in 1997? Oh yeah, there's a comment about the debunkers. They weren't there. I was yeah, there. Did you have the clearances? Were you cleared? Yeah. You know, were you there? They can't answer those questions. All they do is criticize with no evidence, and he turns around and walks away. That was the colonel talking. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um, that's the thing, James. You know, when we talk about these experiences, you know, people will see something. And, and you know, you probably haven't listened to our show, but I've talked about a couple of paranormal episodes in my life, one of which involved a major large-scale UFO sighting in Caracas, Venezuela, in the summer of 1974 where hundreds, maybe thousands of us, watched a cigar ship in the sky. We saw the hatch open underneath of it. We saw the disks come out. We saw the disks triangulate around the cigar-shaped craft, and the whole thing vanished. And this craft was monstrously large. And, and that's something that people cannot understand unless they see this for themselves. And when people say to me, well, you know, why should I believe you? You have no proof. I'll say to them, look, I don't care whether you believe me or not. I was there. I know what I saw. I know what the hundreds of people around me saw. So, you know, if you don't want to believe me, that's fine. Your belief does not in any way validate my reality. You know, mm -hmm. I was there. And, and when Corsa said that, I, I really felt for him because I knew how he was feeling. You know, hey, well, did you have the clearances? Were you there? No. Mm -hmm. Well, then, you know, shut up. Because at that point, you know, to, to have people sit there and and throw stuff at you, it's like, hey, look, if that's the environment in which we're going to discuss these things, we're never going to get anywhere because essentially, um, oh, you, you, you have no solid proof. Oh, okay. So uh, you're all going to church this Sunday? You have proof that Jesus existed? You have proof of your God? How about you know, this? I mean, come on. Eyewitness testimony stands up in a court of law. Right. I can even have someone put in the, you know, hot seat. You got it. Unless it's related to UFOs, then at that point it's all... There's the other contradiction, which is, of course, nothing our government says is believed except about UFOs. We don't believe the government about Iraq. We don't right. believe them about the economy because too many people are suffering. It doesn't matter. We don't believe our government. But if they tell us UFOs don't exist, we believe that. Doesn't make yep. sense to me. I know, right? That's a that's a really good point. 
That's a really good point. You know, and then uh, did you see the, the one point I made when we were on uh, Larry King? You know, and I, uh, there's so many things I wanted to say that I didn't get to say, and it, it was a, uh, anyway. But the one point I did make is I, I sort of drew uh, Michael Shermer into it. I said, look, you know, I, I, we all know that if these things were real or if this phenomenon were real, it would be one of the greatest discoveries. Everyone said, yeah, yeah, well, it would be, yes. Now, and if it were going on, who would be best equipped to know about it? You know, well, military, you know, government, military, everyone's kind of military. Well, there you have it. You know, they're coming out and telling us this stuff's going on, so. Yeah, what more do you need? Right. You know? yeah, besides which, some of the best people in the UFO field, the ones providing the most credible information, are people who used to be in the military. Let us not forget, of course, the late Major Donald Kehoe. Now, I know oh, Kehoe. Know. God, I feel bad for that guy. I mean, I liked him when I met him. I know that people have had encounters with him early on and didn't have a pleasant outcome. And I'll mention one person, James W. Mosley. I don't know if you know who he is. But anyway, I met Kehoe two or three times. I interviewed him, and he seemed like a pleasant old man. When I met him, he was in his late 70s and then in his early 80s. He was still very spry, still very alert. And we had a pleasant conversation. Now, obviously, I always felt that the problem with Kehoe is that he formulated his opinion about UFOs very early on and would not look at some of the more eccentric cases. And I'm not talking about the outright contacts from the 1950s where you have people who go into the desert and they meet blind Venusians. And they, re they rekindle the scene from Dadier stood still where the aliens warn us about the dangers of nuclear experimentation. I'm talking about anything other than a almost close-up sighting. If you get too close to the UFOs, he didn't feel ready to accept that. Let me accept this one thing before we go to the final section of the first hour. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only seven dollars a month how could you go wrong it's reliability and speed speaks for itself and that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now it's host I can give them a try you'll be glad you did to learn more about host I can Go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have the pleasure of spending our evening with James Fox, one of the producers behind Out of the Blue. There's a five-year anniversary edition, and can you tell our listeners what the difference is between this and the original? Yeah, we um, actually hired a musician, a uh, composer, who composed uh, uh, 30, 45 minutes of new music. Uh, we did all new graphics, new animations. It's all widescreen, 16.9 HD widescreen now. Right, right. Um, and we put about, we hacked out about 35 minutes of material and we put in an additional 35, 40 minutes of new stuff. It's basically the film we always wanted to be, but I just kind of ran out of steam five years ago. Well, I agree with that. I like the fact that it is widescreen because David and I have the widescreen TVs. And, you know, it's like watching 
another dimension of mm-hmm. viewing when you have that widescreen. So definitely. More cinematic. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, also, I think it's important to point out that there's a second disc that comes in the package that's got that original documentary that you guys did, The UFO's 50 Years of Denial. Um, it's got some fun interviews with uh, with you, James, and your uh, your co-producers, and um, some other outtake stuff, which I, which I thought was really interesting. My, of course, my favorite thing was your very last word. Where you say, for anybody who thinks we're making a big killing on this financially, <laughs> you kind of you laugh at it, and I think that that's exactly appropriate. People need to understand that getting involved in any way with this field really is a labor of love. It's not something where you're going to make a huge amount of money ultimately, you're, you, unless you're Steven Spielberg. Well, you know, I tell people I'm 39 years old. I've been involved with this for 14 years now. I've made roughly six dollars an hour. I have no savings whatsoever. I'm $100,000 in debt. I don't own a home. I don't even own a car. I have a motorcycle. You know, and I, it's a passion of would I like to make some money? And of course I would. You know it what I mean? Like I mean, I'm doing, us, but I'm not I doing it for the money. Believe me, I'm not doing that. And I challenge anyone to look, look at my bank records the last 14 years if they think that I am. Well, welcome to the club. David and I are sit here in our poverty. Now, yes, we both have vehicles that work. But basically, right. Basically. basically, they work, and I just had to spend a bundle to have the rear brakes. No, I don't want to get into that kind of stuff. But really, I don't think a lot of people are rolling in dough as a result of UFOs. I think that's a very serious fallacy. You're listening to Hoax to Hoax with George Snorri. Uh, well, I've never people, made a dollar on any of this because the angels, uh, they actually give me mana and fish. So I don't really need to make the money. What about uh, the pancakes, George? Well, no, actually, my my mustache does have a special rider for when I go out. <laughs> if that mustache gets any bigger, I think it's going to cover his face. The mustache <laughs> must stay chilled at all times. You're listening to Hoax to Hoax. Art Bell has died, and I am George Snorri. <laughs> Sorry. Just... I was wondering who left that on my answer machine yesterday. We've never figured out who leaves these things. Sometimes <laughs> David gets possessed and he channels oh, people oh, yeah. that we have no idea why. Oh, man. A- another thing I have to say, James, um, there was one segment of the uh, documentary where you talk about less than credible cases. Uh, it's just like a little prelude to something. And in the background, you show some of the Billy Meyer footage. And I want to thank you for that because on the Paracast early on, uh, we went head to head with the U.S. authorized psychotic bulldog for those guys. And um, <laughs> psychotic, you know, by the way, is an understatement. Yeah, well, there's but we that. can't use the other words on. Radio. No, we're not going to do that. No, but but the bottom line was that you know people need to understand that there is a tremendous amount of noise and garbage in this field, and they they have to cut that stuff away to even be able to have any realistic point of reference. And and again, I think that out of the blue of all the stuff I've seen on this topic out of the blue has to be in many ways really the most coherent treaties i've seen on this on the subject because of the fact that you clearly identify noise and get it out of the way and i just want to tell you one thing though there's one technical note that um if you ever do another edition of this god forbid um there is one piece of footage that you have um in the documentary that we now know was indeed faked and it's presented okay. as genuine so just you know for public disclosure here, there was a friend of the show, Jeff Ritzman, who has a lot of really interesting stories, but Jeff and I have become sort of a dynamic duo of image analysis. Jeff had looked uh, a while ago at the footage, I think it was from Mexico City, of the wobbling disc going behind the building. Yes, yes, yes. 
we pretty much know that uh, that footage was fabricated. Really? Just yes, absolutely. It's a CG uh, a ship that was motion matched. It was matched moved into the shaky handheld footage of the building. And it turns out that that footage was shot from the vantage point of a company that happens to do visual effects for TV and film. And Jeff, in doing analysis of the movement of the camera, was able to determine that there was a pretty serious discrepancy at various points between the motion of the disc and the motion of the building. They don't match up. Yeah, they don't match up. Did you see the statement? I believe it's at the end of the uh, of Out of the Blue that we make about UFO footage. We said that all UFO footage featured in Out of the Blue has not been authenticated, and it's right. you know the, uh, validity is is up to the viewer or something like that. Right. We put right. we make a statement at the end of the film that look, it's just eye candy. It's all we. Although the one footage I did have in, I did have analyzed by Industrial Light and Magic, that was pretty impressive footage. Fantastic footage, and uh, Bill George, who's a brilliant guy said exactly the right stuff. In fact, I know that conference room you guys met with him because I used to work at Industrial Light and Magic back in the early 90s. So I know exactly where you met with him. Was kind of, I was laughing as you see the footage of you pulling off of, of 101. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I did that many many a day. I pulled off that same exit to go over and, say, and, and work over at the former Industrial Light and Magic because uh, those guys are now down in the Presidio. That's all gone. And it's kind of funny because, of course, that is the probably the sleaziest neighborhood in San Rafael. Yeah, um, no. I was the last <laughs> place I was expecting to find ILM. I mean, it was the most discreet-looking oh, yeah. building ever. Kerner Optical. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's funny. Every um, time I hear the word Presidio, I think of that bad movie with Mark Harmon and Sean Connery. Do you thank and goodness, Meg Ryan. I don't know what movie you're talking about. It was about. a murder mystery. Okay. Oh, Gene had to bring up his, 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 his obligatory movie reference. Hey, you've been doing all the movie references. You got it out of the way. Okay, now this let's get back to the, the real movie reference. Well, we're talking to a guy who makes documentary <laughs> films here, so, I mean, you know. That's true. That's true. James, there are a couple of things I want to ask you about. We've got our break in two and a half minutes, David, so just let you know that. Okay. When you spoke to people like Robert Jacobs and uh, Robert Salas, who, and we're going to talk about these more during the interview, but did you get a sense from them that they were upset at this point with Greer and what Greer has done with C-SETI? Did they say anything about that at all? Nope, they didn't. Hmm. They did not. But, I mean, the overall mood from different witnesses that I've spoken to recently is at the time, sorry, that was then, and certainly not from those two, but from other witnesses that they're distancing themselves from him unequivocally. Mm-hmm, right. And, so, that, and that there's, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, yes, everyone's distancing themselves from him. Right. But there was no mention at the time when I interviewed them of, of that, no. Okay, all right. I think that, the that's... The overall mood is, yeah, definitely, they're, they're, yeah. So do you they're feel, doing. in speaking to these guys, that the entire disclosure project was, in effect, I don't want to say a wasted effort, but is a zero sum? You know, that was a golden opportunity, and he just went about it, in my opinion, in the wrong way. You know, talking about weaponization of space and alien contact and, uh, you know, and then, and then this, the Stone guy. What was his name? Something Stone? Clifford, Clifford Stone? Stone. Clifford Stone. Stone. I mean, that guy just, uh, I just took one look at him and I thought, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. 
James Fox, one of the producers of the rather excellent documentary, Out of the Blue, uh, one of the few documentaries that treats the topic of UFOs with the degree of respect and clarity that we'd like to see all documentaries have. James, there was something that comes up in, in Out of the Blue that I've always wondered why people don't talk about it more. And I'm just going to ask you briefly about this, if there's anything beyond what was discussed in the, in, in the actual film. I've always thought for years that if there was one guy in the history of the 20th century in this country, the United States, that knew where all the skeletons were buried, that that guy was um, J. Edgar Hoover. He was able to retain power throughout many presidencies. Presidents were scared of this man. A lot of people were scared of this man. He was, I think, arguably the most powerful, I don't want to call him a politician, but certainly in American politics, I believe that he was the most powerful character of the 20th century. In the documentary, you specifically cite and show a document where in his own handwriting, Hoover expressed dismay that the FBI couldn't get a hold of one of those crash disks. Now, where did you find that document? How did you find out about it? And did you find out anything else around that little handwritten statement of his? You know, I, I, I don't know if you guys were, were aware of this or not, but I actually went to uh, Washington, D.C., and I spent a week handing out copies of uh, the older version of Out of the Blue to each and every member of the House, 435. Took, and I had a letter. Each letter I handed out was, was uh, addressed to the chief of staff. Because apparently that's the best way to go about it, and I had an in with uh, with with a woman there on the hill who got me who got me into the into the building because this is after you know a couple of years after 9/11, so the, mm -hmm. they were really cracking down on security. Yeah. But I went there and I, hung, I I handed out 435 copies of the movie this letter, and that was one of the documents that I heard back on on a number of, uh, of occasions. You know, the fact that, uh, A, I, give, I can tell you where you can get it at the archives, at the FBI's own site. So yep. it's a bona fide document, and it's in his own handwriting. So the unfortunate thing is that you can't quite, he said, as within the something case, they grabbed the disc, the Army grabbed the disc and wouldn't let us have it for cursory examination. But you just don't know, but it's three or four days after Roswell. It was, what, was it July 10th? 1947, I believe that document, July, July 10th. I don't remember the date of the document. It's right around there. It's early July, 1947. So it's got to be related to Roswell, but you can't make out the name that his scribble there that he says, for instance, in the blank case. But, um, 
that's truly puzzling, you know. And I'm, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more, you know, just as you say yourself, I'm surprised there hasn't been more discussion about that, that handwritten. Absolutely. I mean, that to me is like smoking gun. That's about the closest thing I think I've seen to a smoking gun about this whole situation. Because as I said, you know, this is a guy who was clued in at every level when presidents weren't in the loop. Hoover was. He held the goods on, on everybody, really. He, he, he you know, you, you didn't cross the guy because he could bring you down. And when you've gotten his handwriting, the mention of, you know, we need to, we want to get a hold of that disc. Um, and why, I would love to get an interview with, with an archivist at the, at the FBI's own website. Why, why would they sanitize that document? I don't understand why they let that one leak through. It's a big organization, the federal government, and maybe every now and then we get something like this that flows through the cracks. Are you still? Are you saying that that document's still up there? Yeah, I mean, last I checked, yes. Oh, man, I mean, well, I put I put the uh, the FTP site on, on in the film, so you yeah, actually, the URL's on there. Yeah, that's I should go check that. That's true. URL, that's true. Yeah, sorry, the URL is on there, and I myself, I mean, you know, I, I myself got it from directly from the FBI's website, so. And I made sure of that, and that's even, I know, so unbelievable that I had to put the URL on the, uh, on the, in the movie because I know people wouldn't believe it otherwise. Well, but it's almost like you want to call the FBI up, speak to a public relations person there, and say, we'd like your official statement about this document. It's on your site. What the hell is this? And just to see what they'll say. Maybe I mean, they'll just it, take it off at that point. <laughs> they might just take it off at that point, yeah. Well, but there it is. It, it's like you can't, they might just take it off. But just for anybody who's wondering, there is the wonderful website called archive.org, the repository of the history of the web. And on archive.org, there is a thing called the Wayback Machine. Put in a URL and uh, it'll give you a history of archive versions of that URL going back to the mid-90s, the beginning of the Internet. So even if they took it off, they'd have to specifically go into the Wayback Machine and remove the occurrences from it there. And I don't know of anybody who's been able to do that with any success. Wow. So, oh yeah. This so one, even if they this one, this one between the cracks, you know, one thing I wanted to mention before I forget, and I, I like to mention this usually up front, is that uh, if there's anyone in the media listening to this uh, podcast, to go to out of the blue the movie dot com and contact me, and I'll send them a, a free preview copy of Out of the Blue. Just, just to contact me, tell me who you're with, and, uh, and out of the blue, the movie.com, and then you can just go to contacts and James Fox, and you can email me, and I'll, and I'll put a, I'll put a copy in the mail for you for free. I'll even pay the postage. Jeez, that's fantastic, man. Well, you're, you're obviously, you're obviously fighting the good fight here. Let's take this even a step further. Um, as I indicated earlier in the show, James, and you know, just understand that on the Paracast, we are really interested in trying to understand this stuff. We're, we're sensational, sensationalizing it is not what we're about. We're really about trying to get a grip on things. And um, when we talk about sourcing of these craft and whatever it is that's inside of them, there are a lot of discussions about alternate theories to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. In the documentary, you have some uh, of an interview with someone we've actually been trying to get on the show, Brian Green, who seems like a really brilliant guy. Now, um, tell us a little bit about his thoughts about the interdimensional aspects of physics and quantum mechanics. And did he say anything to you that's not in the documentary about his thoughts about possible sourcing of these things? Okay, well, I, I, had, to, I had to be honest with you guys. When I did that interview, I kind of, because of his, he's so mainstream, 
Right. I, all I was interested in is hearing a mainstream, respected physicist today. And I was thinking about, because I've met on a couple of occasions through my father, actually, Stephen Hawking. And I was mm. initially going to get an interview with Stephen Hawking about interdimensions, uh, how many dimensions there are, you know, that, that there are dimensions going on all around us. It's like changing the frequency of your radio. It's all around us. We just, you know, tune in and out of it. And, but what, what I wanted to discuss with him is the, the problem is, I think the general consensus amongst the scientific community today is that we are not alone in the universe. I think pretty much categorically everyone will agree that the odds are just right. way too high that we're not alone. Right. The problem that we have is saying, you know, there's no way they can traverse a vast distance of space. We can't do it, therefore they can't do it. It's impossible. And even if they did make a craft that could travel the speed of light, the distance is just too far. It would take too long. Right. So what I wanted to, to talk to him about was, hey, is it possible? Do you think stars travel is would be possible one of these days? And he talk, and then he just says quite openly, he says, you know, I think that the space-time fabric is malleable, you know, and that you don't have to travel from point A to point B. I didn't talk about UFOs or anything. I just said, would it be possible for us or someone else to traverse these vast distances of space? And he said, you know what, I think, there, I think it is. Because you don't have to travel from point A to point B. You can fold, bend, warp the space-time fabric between the two, like going through a wormhole. You know, so that was important for people to understand that there's a mainstream physicist talking today about the possibility of traversing that vast distance of space. So that argument, in my opinion, is no longer valid. Got it. So it wasn't the agenda of trying to get a statement from him about... UFOs, no. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. No, and, and that's certainly... Yeah. Point, because there's so many, so many people say, oh, well, I believe that UFOs are out. I mean, that, that, that the other life forms are out there. There's no question of that. They could be more advanced. Maybe they're not more advanced. Who knows? But they could never get here because it's just too far. It's like, well, wait a minute. Hang on a second. Let's talk to a mainstream physicist and see what he says about that. And so that's why I got Brian Green. Right, right. Now, that makes sense. And, of course, what you find in the world of theoretical physics is that the physicists who are on that bleeding edge of theoretical discussion about hyper-reality and multiple dimensions and string theory and, you know, M-brain theory. In mainstream physics, they're considered radical. A lot of the time, they have a hard time getting any respect from their peers because essentially they're talking about an area of physics where direct observation, really by definition, is almost impossible. You know, we don't have instrumentation that can handle it. And just the, 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 the nature of quantum mechanics is that the phenomenon is going to change based on whether or not you're observing it. And so for a scientist to try to deploy the scientific method in the comprehension of that, well, basically the scientific method is perhaps working against itself at that point. And the minute you say that, you know, the hardcore scientists go, well, if you can't deploy the scientific method, then you've got nothing. With the belief that the scientific method is all-encompassing and that, you know, we can use this to deconstruct absolutely anything. Well, that's, there, of course, real the human ego. There. The human ego is that we know everything now. Just like we knew everything 50 years ago, we knew everything a thousand years ago. Yeah. We always know everything, and right now we're just some ants on a hill here as far as I'm concerned. We know very little of anything because 10 years from now, if you compare what we will know then to what we know now, we will look like the infants again. How long have we been flying, you guys? hundred years, A little over 100 years? <laughs> yeah, just about that. God, think about what we've done in that short period of time. I mean, we were we on the moon within, what, 69 years of, of flight, maybe? 70-something years? 
Yeah, but remember, there are the crazy conspiracy theorists. They'll tell you we never went to the moon. Uh, you know, whatever. It's like, okay, we didn't go to the moon, and uh, the ocean is not made of water. Um, well, there's you know. another conspiracy theory, which is that we've colonized the moon, and we're hiding that information. That's why we don't hear anything more about the space program except uh, these silly shuttles that are 25 years old and barely get up there, and we have these crazy astronauts who get involved in all sorts of things other than flying in space, like drinking and running around in diapers and stuff like that. This is not the real space program. It's going on by the secret government. Of course, if we want to talk about conspiracy theories, but I'm not going to do that. Not on this show. Well, well, Gene, you actually said something before about the anthill, and you know, we, we try not to hog all the time when we have a guest on the show, but there was a link I put up on the Paracast forums, and, and I think James will find this interesting as well, where there was a um, an interview uh, with E.O. Wilson being interviewed by Bill Moyers. And E.O. Wilson is probably one of the greatest living scientists alive uh, today. And uh, he, he's, in his, I think, in his 80s. He's written some really important stuff. One of his areas of hardcore specials, specialization is in ants. This man knows more about ants than pretty much anybody on the planet. And there's one point in the interview where Moyers is talking with him, and uh, E.O. Wilson looks at Bill Moyers and says, we at this point in time have not discovered the majority of the species that live on this planet. And Moyers looks over him and says, uh-huh, what did you just say? I thought that we knew pretty much about all of the species that are, that are on the planet, and we're still discovering new ones, but... We know about the majority of them. I mean, that's certainly conventional wisdom. And E.O. Wilson looks over him, shakes his head and smiles and goes, no, it's simply not like that. And when you have a guy like E.O. Wilson going on record, making that statement, that tells you something about human vanity, ego, and the notion of being humble. This is a guy who knows more about the way that life works on this planet pretty much than anybody and he makes that statement. So for us to make these grandiose proclamations about understanding not only the nature of reality, but the construction of the universe, my God, at this point in time, here's what we know about the universe. The majority of the matter that makes up the mass of this universe is stuff that we can't see, we can't detect, so we call it dark matter and dark energy, and that's all we know about it. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support 
this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, and we're talking to James Fox, one of the folks who created the film, Out of the Blue, fifth anniversary edition with all sorts of updates and outtakes and lots of good stuff available now. David? James, in the documentary, there, there are segments of interviews with um, Robert Jacobs and, uh, and Bob Salas, and, and I'd like to ask you some questions about that. When you interviewed Robert Jacobs about this episode with the Atlas Rocket film, did he say anything to you that wasn't in the documentary? I mean, did he ever try to do any kind of follow-up to figure out what had really happened and what the nature of that footage was? And Could you explain to our audience a little bit about what he actually saw, what, what went down with that? Uh, okay, with, with Jacobs, uh, first of all, I have to say that Jacob, I interviewed Salas, and Jacobs, I got from Dr. Stephen Greer, and I gave him an interview that I did in exchange. He gave me that interview. So I did not meet Jacobs. I hung out with Salas. Okay. I could still tell you know I could tell you what you know what, what basically would happen. But I mean I just wanted to make said that uh, I think it's one of the few interviews in the whole documentary that I didn't that I didn't personally do. I've done probably ninety nine percent of them. Okay. But yeah, it was like a, a, an Atlas rocket, and they put a dummy warhead. They put a dummy nuclear warhead on an Atlas rocket, and they were they were uh, experimenting with you know different launch procedures. And I guess he was set up at Big Sur uh, with a telescope that had just amazing optics and you know video camera on this thing, and they could film this thing from several miles away as it went up through the various stages of of, of flight. And I think it got up to. I don't know what else did, but I think he said the thing was traveling like 10,000 miles an hour, some unbelievable race. And, uh, and that this saucer-shaped craft, well, they didn't see anything really from the time. The film footage, uh, it, the, whole, the whole thing was filmed. Right. And I think it was a day or two later after the film went through processing that he was called back into his uh, superior's office. And uh, he just said, you know, he put the film... They, they played the movie. They had a, a projectors that are set up in the office, and they played the film. And there's the Atlas rocket taking off, and it's going through its various stages of, of flight. And uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, this saucer-shaped craft flies into frame and shoots, and it flies around the dummy warhead and shoots several beams of light at the dummy warhead, causing it to self-destruct or, or destruct, and it, and it sort of tumbles out of the air and then flies out the way it came in. And I guess they turned to him, they shut, turned the thing off, and they looked at him and said, Are you guys screwing around up there? And he said, No, sir. And he said, What was that? <laughs> he said, Do I believe we have a UFO? You know. And uh, anyway, apparently they, 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 some people showed up. Uh, he didn't know where they were from, but they were in suits. He believed they were from Washington, but he didn't yeah, know. Yeah, he, he said they looked like civilians. Yeah, they weren't yeah, like civilians in suits. Yeah, they weren't in, yeah. in uniform. And that they confiscated the uh, film footage, just that section of the film that was that was, uh, and, and uh, never seen or heard from again. Do you get the sense from having done these interviews that people have some handle? You have all these military guys and ex-military guys yeah, talking about this stuff. Do you get any sense of what reason ultimately is the one that makes it so that the government 
keeps all this shrouded in secrecy? Did you? I mean, that's that's one of the the biggest questions of this whole field. Why? Well, here's what I've heard. You now, one just has to. I mean, I, I'm obviously to a certain extent sort of speculating, but this is what it was told directly to me. This is from. Um, I worked on a movie set with Mickey Rooney probably 14 years ago in a movie called The Legend of Obi Taggart, where I was his prison guard. And I hung out with his wife, Jan Rooney, who was a colonel, I believe he was a colonel in the Air Force. And, and coincidentally, he was stationed in Roswell in 1947. And he told her, Jan Rooney, that if the truth about UFOs came out, the one thing that the, uh, the Air Force, I believe it was the Air Force he was working with, determined rather quickly was that it would have a devastating impact on organized religion. And that's what he told Jan, and Jan shared that directly with me. So the other thing would be, I mean, what do we pay the military to do? Well, theoretically protect us. Theoretically protect us, and, and if there's no visible means of defense against these things, shall we turn to be hostile? But well, unfortunately, um, the theory doesn't why any, seem to work anymore, does it? Right. I can't imagine why any, any military or government would disclose that type of information. You know, I, I actually made a, a sort of statement about that on Nightline a couple of weeks ago. ABC Nightline, you can you could go to the website and check it out. But I said, uh, you can imagine the president basically coming out tomorrow and saying, you know, my fellow Americans, uh, it has been brought to my attention that there are structured craft of unknown origin whizzing around in our airspace. And uh, shall they turn to be hostile? We, they fly rings around our fastest jets. And shall they turn out to be hostile? We have no visible means of defense against them. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, but at this point... I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just guessing. Sure, but, I mean, one could say, well, look, if they were overtly hostile, they would have done something really nasty at this point. I mean, there's no reason that to be holding back. Right. And if anything, you know, it's pretty clear that they're not. I mean, if anything, we have, for example, in the documentary, we have Robert Salas, and he talks about this episode that happened... Uh, what in, in the '67 in, in the '60s that yeah in you know, Montana yeah I mean tell 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 our listeners a little bit about that if you would well basically uh, you know it was during the height of the Cold War and they had these Minuteman missiles and he was one of the launch control officers so in other words if he got the call from the president uh, you know to launch he he's the one that pushed the button so this mm -hmm. guy's got like nerves of steel and he comes across that way in the, in the film you know he's just he's very he's almost he's just very mellow very composed very thoughtful did, did you notice that about him absolutely definitely he nerves control. of steel and he control. was the one who was he was the launch control officer he was i believe he was a colonel and he was the one that had to push the button and he said that he got a he got a phone call from his top side uh, officer uh, about a, an object that was hovering over the uh, the, the missile site. And I believe there were hundreds of these Minuteman missiles, and that um, they were separated by miles, these missiles, over a very large area in Montana, yeah. and that this thing was, was hovering over uh, over the, the missile site, and that the, he was very, very, very alarmed. There were a number of, of witnesses looking at this thing, and and, uh, and I think a minute, uh, less than a minute or two later, all the missiles, just one after the other, just started being just completely shut down. They were just disabled. And then the thing whizzed off at a very high rate of speed and disappeared. But that this thing actually flew over the, the Minuteman missile sites in Montana in 1967 and started shutting the missiles down. They went into, they went into a no-go uh, position. Forgive me for the movie reference, Day the Earth Stood Still, the scene where Klaatu disables electrical systems except for those required for health and safety. And airplanes. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, there are a number of those. I mean, you know, Bentwaters, uh, that was housing nuclear weapons. White Sands, New Mexico, testing, you know, where, where Roswell. 
weapons, nuclear weapons. So the Russians talked about that as well. So there seems to be some sort of pattern emerging here that they, uh, they, whoever or whatever these things are, they, they have an interest in our uh, nuclear capabilities. It's almost oh, like and, trying to take in, take in matches out of the hand of a baby. I want to ask you something here in putting together this documentary and talking to people. Now, maybe some of the stuff ended up on the cutting room floor, not in the outtakes or anything. But did any specific people you want to name or not really disappoint you because you went out there expecting to get some really good information and no, you found out they either didn't have the information you expected or it didn't pass muster? You know, this is okay. I've been chasing Buzz Aldrin for about 14 years, and in 1999, through his sister Faye Ann, Ald- Faye Ann Potter, sorry, she lives here in, in Marin County, uh, and as well as Jan Rooney and Mickey Rooney are friends with, with Aldrin, they, they uh, after years uh, of massaging, they managed to get him to agree to, uh, to break his UFO sighting story for the first time with me. Hmm. Uh, I spoke with him on the phone, he said he was on book tour, and that he was going to be in the south of France, and if I wanted to meet with him for an on-camera interview, that's the place to do it. So I borrowed the money, got the camera crew ready, jumped on an airplane, flew down to the south of France. Actually, I flew to London, and I flew to Paris, and then I took a, took a uh, train down to the south of France. And I was down there for probably five days in, Mo- in Monte Carlo, and that place is expensive. Wow. And uh, after day five, and he kept saying, oh, he's busy, he's busy, he's busy, then tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And then finally on day five, I said, look, you know, we got to do this. I, I can't keep these guys waiting forever. He said, well, come meet me. Don't have the cameras rolling, but come meet me in my hotel. Here's my hotel lobby. And he told me what hotel he was staying in. So I went there with my crew, and I said, I promise the cameras won't be rolling. I'm sitting there in the lobby waiting for him, having a coffee, and a very, very um, nice hotel. And uh, the receptionist came out. Concierge receptionist came out, and Mr. Fox is a phone call for you. And went up there, and it was Buzz Aldrin. And he said, How is my UFO story going to make any difference? How's it going to? And I said, Look, with all due respect, it takes people of your stature to come forward to elevate this, you know, the subject matter to a, you know, more credible level. And then he said, Well, Paul Allen just came out and invested in SETI, and that he was labeled a UFO nut, and I'm not willing to take that same chance right now because I'm trying to get funding to develop this rocket to put civilians in the outer space and then I want to jeopardize that initiative so I can't do the interview. And then that was that. And then here I am in the green room with him at the Larry King show a couple weeks ago. And he's trying to pretend like he doesn't even know who I am. So I started dropping names on him. I started dropping Jan Rooney and his sister. You you don't you know recall you had me fly all the way to the south of France with the camera crew and then you pulled the carpet off under me. And then I started getting very irritated, and um, you know, because you know he was—he definitely was, was remembering, and he knew that I knew what he what he said to me. And then we decided that uh, I wouldn't put too much heat on him on the show because you know he is an American icon, and he's well respected, and all the rest of it. And so I did kind of take a jab or two at him on the show. So, you know, here we are on live television, and in between the commercial breaks, actually Fife in the green room said, you know, you might you know take a little jab at him, but I don't know if you want to bring all that stuff up on national television. And he is an American icon, and maybe you better just kind of back off and let it let it go. So I did take a jab at him on national television. Uh, his sister had told me that it was in a fighter jet. And, you know, well, you know, there's two different cases, one on the way to the moon, and then, of course, uh, which his story's been changing on that as well. And then if, when he was uh, he was uh, flying in a jet airplane, I think, his sister wasn't sure. She, she, she said test pilot, but he was a test pilot instructor, I believe is what he was. He was an instructor with a jet right. airplane. Anywhere he had it, where he actually uh, 
think he said that the UFO chased him or he chased the UFO. I can't remember with one or the other. But it's clearly, he told us it's all about it. But anyway, I, you know, and in between the commercial breaks, I, I mentioned some of those things to him sort of jostle his memory, but um, I didn't do it to him on national television. Well, you didn't want to come off looking like Shermer. It wouldn't have been worth it, maybe. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to James Fox, one of the three producers of Out of the Blue, the fifth anniversary edition, two DVD set currently out. This is an excellent, excellent documentary. James, I want to ask you something here about the situation there. Do you think that maybe somebody in the government said, you know, don't talk about this man. You don't want to get involved. Forget about it. You're a patriot and you have to listen to what your upper management says. Don't do it. Or do you think that maybe he is confused about something or what? I would say if there's any truth behind the UFO phenomenon, then, uh, and of course I believe there is, uh, then he's one of the highest profile individuals. I mean, Apollo 11 with Neil Armstrong is one of the highest profile individuals alive today. Very influential, and I think that's, that would make headlines. And then, of course, the, the, the media would be buzzing uh, Aldrin, I'm sorry, uh, Armstrong for answers, and I just don't think they want to draw that kind of attention at all. So it would not surprise me uh, uh, in the least if he did get a phone call you know, from NASA or from somebody else just to kind of let it go. Mm. You know, I mean, because there's obviously a side of him that wants to get this off his chest. I mean, I mean, he said to me, how's my UFO experience or how's my UFO sighting going to change anything? It's exactly what he said to me. And I said, it, it takes people of your stature to come forward to elevate this thing, you know, this, this whole phenomenon. 
the, the level of credibility and stuff. And uh, and then he, you know, like I said, he made reference to Paul Allen and, and investing in SETI, and, uh, and he said that he didn't want, he just couldn't, he couldn't afford, he wasn't willing to jeopardize his initiative to, for that. At, at this point, so but then I talked to his sister just about a week ago, and she's going to talk to him and find out why he did what he did on Larry King. And, and you know, it'd be quite honestly at this point, even if he did come out and tell the truth, his story's changed so much that I don't think it's he's even credible anymore. Right, the pool's been poisoned, as it were. Yeah, and that's exactly. sad. That that's really sad. Now, you said something before uh, that is something we've also talked about in the show, James. That. Other governments are now starting to open up their archives, and they're starting to talk more openly about this. There was the um, French Cometa report that uh, you cite extensively in the documentary, and I think that's a really important report. Yeah, yeah, that, that was made public, you know, with names and references. It's not like uh, coming from unknowns. People mm -hmm. actually put their names on the report. Absolutely. So, and that was 1999, but but since then, as you're well aware, I think it's CNES. They changed their name a couple of times, but it's a it's a branch of the government that researched and investigated UFOs over a 50 or 60 year period, and they've just released all their files. That's right. That's made right. In public. So mm -hmm. that's a big move. Do, do you think that this is happening because these foreign governments are trying to pressure, in essence, the U.S. government to being more? revealing with their information? I mean, why do you think that this is happening now? That's a good question, you know. I think, you know, my own personal take on it, and this is mm -hmm. just, you know, speculation, but my, my, sure. my own personal take from the research, research that I've done, I think that the American government knows a lot more than the other governments. I, I believe that uh, they did recover something back in 1947. I just find it impossible to imagine how the most elite bomb squadron in the world at the time could mistake an everyday weather balloon for a flying saucer. So I, I believe their initial report of, of, of say, uh, their initial announcement of saying they did recover this thing, I, I tend to I tend to believe that statement. Well, especially also crash dummies that weren't discovered or invented till several years later. Yeah. Did, did you hear the statement the Air Force made back in 1997 about that? Those crash dummies. Yes. Oh yeah. All right. It's in the opening scene of the of the Larry King segment. Uh, but you know, the guy's like, you know, you got all these on oh, a long time ago. And you got these big dummies, and then you got the, these other reports of, 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 of this craft, and then you got this weather balloon. And you take everything you hear, and you mix it and spin it all around, and you know, and now comes this crazy. <laughs> it makes you want to spin. What? what are you saying? Right, right. <laughs> you take them all and you spin it all around. <laughs> Did you hear? Did you hear that, that Air Force guy saying that? I just yeah. It makes you want to spit, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, you guys? It's really not that long. I mean, it takes 60 years now. It, I hate to use the word cover-up or whatever you want to call it because it's a buzzword and so it's, you know, UFO and flying saucer, but 60 years is not that long. I mean, it's like, what, a couple of generations. And, and the stuff really, and everyone says, well, if, there's, if this thing were real, if there was any truth behind this, there'd be people talking about it. Well, there are a lot of people talking about yeah. it you know, and have been talking about it, just it seems to be falling on deaf ears. And, and I think that I think that the, out of the blue is, is, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I, I, I think we, we, we've accomplished our objective thus far in terms of the production values. But to make a, present a body of evidence to mainstream media and public, at the very least digestible, and to say, you know what, there's, there, there appears to be definitely something going on here. And I think that we've, we've, we've succeeded in doing that with out of the blue. And, and now it's just a matter of, of really getting the film uh, out there.
Well, I guess people are probably wondering, why don't they turn on TV and see your documentary? Why don't they turn on the sci-fi channel and see it aired once a week? You know, much less getting it on ABC or NBC or any of the, the, well, the big well, here, here's my here's my goal right now. I've had a couple of offers for the movie with uh, cable channels. But I, I really, I'm, I'm thinking two things. I'm holding out because I'm waiting for something better to come along. I could be shooting myself in the foot. I don't know. That's not my... My gut feeling tells me I need to hold out. Uh, I either want to get a terrestrial channel, um, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, ABC, sorry did I say that, or maybe an HBO special or maybe uh, a theatrical release. And I, I don't know if the film is too long at this point. We could probably edit it down to, I don't know, one and a half hours for a theatrical release. But those are some of the, the ideas that I'm entertaining right now. And, and uh, we have an agent out there. I, I didn't spend 14, in my, 14 years of my life to, just to make a hasty sale and, and move on. I really want to get this thing out there in, a, in the best way possible. And I want whatever organization it is that's going to broadcast this movie to do it in a, in a more serious tone and, and make sure the publicity is right and, and uh, you know, get it right. That's one of the things I wanted to raise, and I, maybe David will add to it also. And that is, okay, guys, what about the follow-up here? Now, we have the documentary. We have other articles, stories for year after year. Do we go back to Congress and hope they're going to investigate UFOs or say something? What do we do to get this subject to be taken seriously? Uh, well, here's, here's the catch. Congress is not going to have any hearings unless their constituents are hounding them. That's just right. the, obviously that's just the way it works, right? Yep. Yep. So, well, how do we get the constituents to hound them for hearings? Well, we have to get the information out to the constituents, mm -hmm. the public. So the first step is, okay, let's let the public know there's a lot more to UFOs than swamp gas. And so uh, that's why I really want a big broadcast. I don't want like a little 1.4 million viewership. I want ABC, NBC, one of the big guys, and really promote it and get this information. Because I think that everyone agrees this would be an amazing discovery, and, and it would be, you know, up towards, you know, a 10 in the significant scale of, of, of discoveries of, uh, of importance. Uh, therefore, uh, and I think that, that, that Out of the Blue makes a very strong uh, and compelling argument, you know. So I think there's a market for it. I just have to tap that right market. Uh, you know, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, so I you think have there's to... definitely potential there. I just have to go about it in the right way and, and not be too hasty. And and, and, uh, and, and like, I, like I said, I mean, I've had amazing response. I mean, even the people, you know, whether you like Larry King or not, they do have pretty good exposure. And, you know, Nightline and, and a number of other uh, media outlets that, that have seen the movie and they say, hey, man, this is amazing. We're behind you. Let us know what, what the game plan is and, and we'll be ready to report on this. So I, I do, for the first time ever, have, a, have a, a, a lot of people behind me on this. But we just have to, you know, we just have to kind of cross our fingers and make sure that we make all the right decisions. I think you need to go visit Uncle George, Uncle George Lucas. You need to go knock on his door. And say, Listen, my next door neighbor, my next door neighbor is a favorite, very famous editor, and he said, as a matter of fact, it's something I got to do because I'm going to get a copy of the film into his hands. Um, Walter Murch, he does stuff with Coppola and Lucas. I knew, I knew you were talking about him. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's my next door neighbor. I grew up with his son. My dad's good friends with him, and he's very, very. He's been counting me for a copy of the movie, and he said that if he likes it, he'll give it to Coppola and Lucas. So um, I'm going to give him a copy. And so. Well, no, but George has five billion dollars burning a hole in his pocket, and uh, <laughs> and he, I know, can, right? he can spend a little bit on this. Uncle George has got the dough, and uh, and you know how you really get to Uncle George? Here's what you do: you go over to the Raphael Theater on Fourth Street. Marsha Lucas, his ex-wife, contributed a bunch of money to the building of that place. 
you get them to show it over there. And that's when you tell Uncle George, hey, listen, they're showing it down at the Raphael, George. Uh, help us get some wider distribution for this thing. I mean, he's a powerful guy. And yeah, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I, I was invited to do last week was to have a, a ILM, a Lucas, or ILM wants to have a private screening. A screening. I, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I'm actually not trying, I'm raising uh, 50000 bucks for an event that we're doing, which I'll, I'll tell you guys about uh, in the next month or so, probably within a month, you'll, uh, we should talk about it. But um, so I'm doing private investors because I want to maintain full control of, of how this this event is done, and so uh, we're going to have a few screens and and discuss uh, our game plan with with people and and uh, so if there's any listeners out there that are curious to know more about it, just get in touch with me through my website. And just tell everybody the website again. We're going to link oh, to it with out your of name. The blue, Outoftheblue.themovie.com. And by the way, we will also link to it at thepowercast.com, but for people who don't get to the website or just hear the broadcast, outoftheblue.themovie.com. Yes. Okay. That's right. Um, an yeah. ILM screening is a great thing, um, you know, because the thing about getting support at a place like ILM is that everybody wants to be their friend. And, um, you know, people are, th well, it used to be that people were thrilled to get tours of the facility down the Canal District. Now you can go get tours of the Presidio where you see the uh, statue of Yoda peeing into a fountain, um, which is always good for a good photo op. <laughs> uh, I, I know way too much about where all the skeletons are buried in Uncle George's world, actually. We'll oh, talk about really? that offline, James. Oh, oh, oh yeah, really. Oh. Well, you Maybe know, I have a lot of people that work for them they here in, in, in Rune County. I've, uh -huh. I, I know a couple of people that have spent the last 20 years doing stuff for him. And I don't know if he's the answer. To be quite honest with you, I'm, I'm much more inclined uh, to collaborate with, with something Spielberg's doing. Oh, that would make sense. Um, you know, he's a guy who um, clearly has demonstrated a real strong interest in this topic, and certainly Close Encounters was a very important film in many ways that uh, try to, to take this topic and just give it a little bit more I don't want to say legitimacy, but certainly try to make it less goofy than it really has been as far as how it's depicted in the media. I think Spielberg did a lot towards that. Look at Dr. Dalen Heineck, scientific advisor to Project Blue Book for the Air Force, debunking science for the Air Force. Then he, then, he, then he establishes, what, in 1979, was it the Center for UFO Studies out of Chicago? Mm-hmm. Well, he's in, as you guys know, he has a cameo appearance in Close Encounters. That's right, mm -hmm. right towards the end when the spaceship lands. And his book influenced that movie. Now, I knew Dr. Hynek very, very slightly. I don't want to say anything more about it than that. I met him several times, interviewed him, and you he seemed dropper. like a pleasant... Did you interview, did you, I'm sorry, did you interview him uh, on camera or... No, no. Tape? I frankly interviewed him on tape. I cannot tell you where that tape is. I probably still have it somewhere. Gosh, because I tell you, I'd love to, if you have any excerpts from that at all, I'd love to put them on my website. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do is, as I go through the old stuff, comb through the archives, if I locate any of that stuff, and I might also have actually a recording with Major Donald Kehoe that I did. Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to hear that too. And you, hey, you remember there was a broadcast of Donald Kehoe back in, God, I want to say it's the 50s, but I'm not positive, but it was apparently it was supposed to be a live broadcast. With That's right. This was CBS in the 1950s, CBS. and I think... Okay. I know what's CBS. happening. He mentioned it in one of his books where he... He was supposed to follow 
follow a script and he, right. and he, and he deviated and they cut him off the air. And oh, yeah. The logic he gave was, and he mentioned it in one of his books, that they kept censoring everything he wanted to say. And he became so frustrated with the censorship that finally, when he got on the air, he deviated from the script. Unfortunately, then he looked like a fool. Because they said, who is this crackpot who's getting up there and now he's saying that I'm going to tell you something that you never heard before? And Where does that footage exist? Wasn't he in the military at the time of doing that? No, he was retired. He was now, actually a... Yeah. Has anybody seen that footage? Because I noticed in Timothy Good's book, Above Top Secret, there's a, one clip, there's one photograph of him on the air in his book. I don't know where he got that film strip from. I don't know where he got that photograph from. You probably have to go to the CBS archives if they have it. I did go to the CBS archives. They were not able to locate it. Has anybody seen it? Have you guys seen it? No. no. Paging the clip. Paging the clip. Please call, please call James Fox at George Lucas's house. <laughs> in San Rafael. <laughs> Aging James. Paging maybe, the clip. Maybe Are George you Lucas clip? has it or Steven Spielberg. You know, it's funny yeah. that, no, Kehoe was actually a balloon pilot in the Marine Corps. And he retired years and years before we knew him as the UFO expert, you know, because remember the guy was already in his 40s or 50s by the time he got involved in that. He was an aviation writer of okay, right. popular aviation magazines. And then I think it was True Magazine. He wrote I this. I used to write for True Magazine. Okay. He wrote this long article for True Magazine, which became his first UFO book. And then he was sucked into it, I guess. So much for Donald Kehoe. I did interview him a couple of times. If I have the tape, it's yours. Oh, well, thank you. I'd love to see it. There's something else I'll send over to you, James. There was, um, you know, you, you mentioned in the documentary, if I'm not wrong, the O'Hare episode from last November. Yeah, we touched on it very briefly. Yeah. Touch on it very briefly. Um, so just in the past week or two, uh, NARCAP uh, issued a report uh Pretty much the definitive scientific analysis of what happened uh, back in November. And um, one of the frequent guests to our show, Jeff Ritzman, and I were able to contribute some of our knowledge in image processing specifically because we had done a bunch of analysis work on the photographs that reportedly came out of that episode. Um, and so the photographs that came out of there, huh? Yeah, it's a bit of a complicated topic. I'll talk to you about it off air. But... Um, yeah, there were some photographs. Uh, there were a bunch of photographs that were obviously ridiculous. There was one photograph, though, that was very curious. And uh, we've talked about it a little bit on the Paracast, and uh, we're, 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 we're sort of not being completely expository about it because of the nature of what we discovered about this photograph. Suffice it to say, this photograph appears to be genuine but tampered with in order to delegitimize any further photographs that would uh, that would emerge potentially that would corroborate the veracity of this particular photograph be very unusual whoa yeah Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have another 10 minutes to spend with our new friend James Fox, one of the producers of Out of the Blue, the fifth anniversary edition, two DVD set now available. By the way, James, your two co-producers, how heavily invested are they in this subject? Uh, Tim, Boris just was, was initially come on just as an editor doesn't really care one way or the other really a whole lot <laughs> I would say about the subject I mean it's not a passion of his at all and he did it only because it was a project that I felt very passionately about and he saw that the, the, the caliber of witnesses that I was bringing to the table and so he, he became involved with the project and he was also involved as only as an editor in the first project uh, 50 Years of Denial but um, Tim used to do some, some, some writing for uh, the BBC some radio work I believe for the BBC and he, uh, well, he actually discusses it in the outtakes, but he, he's very interested uh, in the phenomenon, and very, very interested, probably as interested as I am. Hmm. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he, Tim approached me after he saw 50 Years of Denial. Are we still on the air, or is this a commercial break? Oh, no, no, we're still on the air. Oh, so sorry. Yeah. We're on the last nine minutes or so, folks. Yeah, Tim approached me, and uh, he said, do you have any plans to do another piece? And I said, well, you know, initially I didn't, and I think at this point I am, actually, because I've just gone to Russia, and I did some additional interviews. 
And he said, well, you know, if you need some help, I'd love to be, I'd love to help you out with it because I feel very passionately as you do about the subject matter. And so that's how it started. But yeah, so, so, so Tim Coleman, yes, uh, Boris, not so much. Well, we really appreciate the fact, uh, James, that you've approached this topic with a skeptical mind. And people need to understand that the meaning of that is that, you know, you're actually really applying deductive reasoning and, and actual logic to this topic instead of you know, turning to emotional appeals and beliefs. And um, yeah, we really appreciate what you're doing because that's really what we're trying to do on the Paracast with some degree of success. Uh, Gene is usually cited as the sort of stable force on here. and Which I really think, uh, has to say something because if yeah. I'm a stable force, then we are all in a lot of trouble right now. I think so. One of, one of our listeners referred to me as the, uh, what was it, the Jewish madman or something because of uh, the, the, you know, the, the extreme statements I'll sometimes make. In the, you're Jerry Lewis and I'm Dean Martin, which... There you go. That's yeah. a, well, Whitey! Point. But uh, the thing I want to ask you about, James, um, yes. is what has been the reaction on the part of what we call the hardcore believers, the people who feel that uh, Billy Meyer's been talking to Pelagians and uh, people who feel that uh, Daniel Fry or George Adamski were the legitimate contactees or people who feel that they are speaking with the benevolent alien brothers who are here to save us from ourselves. What's been their response to that? They feel like, they, they, I think they feel like, uh, like I let them down. And I keep trying to say to these people, I'm not trying to separate myself from them or anything else, but I, keep, I do try to let them know that I did not create this film to, to preach to the choir. Mm -hmm. and I, I, we have to reemphasize that I, I made this movie to be able to present this with this film and this evidence to mainstream because what's the point of creating a body of evidence to someone who already you know knows of, about the reality of this whole phenomenon and so they always feel i think they're, they're let down and disappointed that i didn't go into more detail about alien contact or abductions or anything and i avoided those things like the plague because, mm -hmm. because once again i have to say extraordinary claims quite extraordinary evidence not to say that there are a couple of cases that i'm familiar with that i was very very taken by you know, fire in the sky, or Travis Walton case, and a couple others. But I, you know, I just, I just avoided those altogether because I, I really wanted to be as conservative and, and, and credible as I could possibly be with it, with a subject that's, that's pretty much uh, sensational enough. Doesn't need any additional. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, and we commend you for that because you've taken a, a very sober, very um, reasonable what I would consider centrist view that ultimately I think is the most productive for moving this topic forward in a constructive way. So uh, we understand something about taking that position and having essentially uh, the unenviable reality of getting attacked from both sides of the fence, from the debunkers on one side and the believers on the other, when what you're really trying to do is talk about this in a balanced way. It seems like fair and balanced is... A tagline thrown around quite liberally, but which ultimately people do not adhere to. We, we do live in a polarized environment, and this is a topic I bring up constantly on the show, where I think that the thing about Out of the Blue, much like uh, our friend Paul Kimball's documentary, Best Evidence, filmmaker out of uh, Canada who's got a documentary essentially detailing what he feels are the top ten UFO cases uh, that merit further discussion. So he's got a documentary that's not been aired in the United States yet. It hasn't been aired in Canada. Um, Have you seen it? 
Yes, actually, uh, uh, Paul sent me a copy, so I have it. I'd love and to get a copy. I think I think we could we could get in touch with Paul and and have I'm him. I'm happy to, to pay it. for it. I'd, I'd love to get a copy. I really would. I think that uh, you know what I'm guessing that if we tell Paul that you're you're willing to trade, I'm sure he'd be thrilled to do that. Yep, I'll send him a copy. Um, he sends me a copy. Done yeah, well, deal. Paul's a friend of the show, so I don't think yeah. there'll be any issue there at all. Now we only have a few moments left, and for those who may have information that can help you in future research, because obviously now that you're sucked into this field as the rest of us are, you're going to continue your work. At this point, if they have more information to present to you, do they go to the website? Is there an email address? Yeah, what? website is the best way. You can contact me directly from the website. And I'm particularly interested in any witnesses, uh, preferably anyone with United Airlines, that would like to come forward and talk about the O'Hare sighting. Because, and, and I'd like to speak with you guys later about this as well. Because I've got an event coming up in a couple of months' time that, uh, that I could use a few good witnesses. Well, we'll see what we can do with you uh, on that. Um, what I will do is send you the report that um, Dick Haynes and NARCAP did, which is really um, uh, just a shining example of the way that a UFO situation should be investigated and should be researched and documented. Dick Haynes and NARCAP are really guiding lights in this field. And yeah, I've interviewed him. I really, really like him a lot. Fantastic guy, uh, fantastic organization doing really important work. So I'll make sure to send over um, to you a copy of the of the link for the 150-some-odd-page PDF, which I'm sure wow. I'd be happy to, to have you distribute because in there, and, and the thing about Haynes is that he takes the position that you know, he stays away from sensationalism. There, He doesn't couch things as UFOs and aliens. Instead, he is researching and documenting anomalous uh, aerial activity that potentially presents a danger to aviation. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and that's exactly the right position to take. And, and essentially, in the executive summary, it points out that when you've got something that's hovering over a terminal for 20-some-odd minutes, it's not showing up on radar, but yet is clearly in visible sight, you've got a security breach. You have a problem. Mm -hmm. and um, And that's the conclusion that... It's essentially the foundation of the conclusion of the report, but um, the the extensive documentation he provides as far as everything from the weather conditions to what was going on in the control tower and and all of these the after the fact witness testimony and we do have a line on one key witness that uh, went onto the website above top secret and uh, gave quite a bit of information and and what appears to be credible testimony. We do have a line on her. Our, our friend Jeff Ritzman spoke to her extensively over the phone and, um, and has her contact information. She's a real person. So we're happy to, to get you that information uh, because we think what you're doing is really good work, and we'd love to help you any way we can. Well, thank you so much. No, I really do appreciate that the support of you guys because, believe me, I need it. It's like uh, you know, one needs all the – I mean, this is a very big story that we're trying to break, and one yeah. could use uh, all the help one can get. You know? There's too much infighting in this field. And There's too much infighting. I always try to tell people, it's like, let's focus on a common goal. Right. And and get there. You know, and stop all the bickering. It's like, uh, you know, I'm not really I'm not interested. <laughs> my life's difficult enough as it is, you know, creating this movie just about just about killed me. I mean it, it's devastated my relationship with my editor and, and my, my co producer. I mean you can't imagine the amount of times that we it was, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done times a million in my life. I, I I don't have it in me to do make another out of the blue, let's put it that way. 
If George Lucas hands you a check for $12 million, I think you might change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe if it was in budget, it would be great. I mean, we did that on a shoestring. I mean, I remember scheduling interviews with people and not having any idea how to get the money to go there, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Hey, we want to thank you so much, James Fox, one of the producers of Out of the Blue. We now have the five-year anniversary edition. It's 16 by 9, which means, of course, it's a widescreen production. It's going to look terrific on a regular TV, even better on a widescreen TV. If you got, well, well, go out and buy a widescreen here's TV. Here's the thing. Well, now, we don't often say this on the Paracast, Gene, but I'll tell our listeners this time. Go and buy this. It is well worth the money. It is the best 20-some-odd bucks you're going to spend this year. We don't often give uh, strong commercial endorsements, James, but uh, I feel comfortable in saying to our listeners, this is one DVD that if you have a real interest in this topic and you want to have access, even to some great footage that James was able to compile, Spend the twenty four, twenty five bucks on this. It's well worth it. I think that James should be re- rewarded and compensated for his work here. I think that is certainly a reasonable thing. And if you're going to go spend money on a ridiculous book about the Space Brothers, uh, you know, making pizza pies with anchovies and pineapple and uh, motor oil and meatballs. Uh, for, for, yeah, uh, no, well, not meatballs, turkey balls. But if you're going to go spend money on stupid books, this is the one DVD in this field besides Best Evidence that I would strongly recommend buying. And so, again, we don't make these kinds of proclamations on the Paracast really ever. But I'll go out on a limb this time and say, buy this. It's well worth your money. Definitely. I agree. Go to outofthebluethemovie.com, www.outofthebluethemovie.com. We'll have it linked at the Paracast. Once again, James Fox, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Thanks, James. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.